0: Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And today, which is Wednesday, the 26th of May, I'm joined by two creators and artists who make and work with paper. Amy Lee is an artist and scholar who champions Korean papermaking, which is also known as Hanji. She's the author of the award-winning book, Hanji Unfurled, and built the first Hanji studio in North America, which is located in Cleveland, Ohio, where she lives. She teaches, lectures, exhibits, and is collected internationally. Barb Adams lives in Melbourne, Australia, and she's been making paper for over two decades. She's an active member of Papermakers of Victoria and the International Association of Hand Papermakers and Paper Artists, and she regularly leads workshops and has also exhibited internationally. Amy and Barb, thank you very much for joining me for this COVID conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, you two know each other a little bit, don't you? Can you tell me how that came about?
1: I was on a trip several years ago to Australia to teach in Tasmania and then took a little trip to Melbourne and was able to meet Barb through a mutual friend. She was so generous to invite me to her home and essentially invite me to make paper with her at her beautiful studio. And so we had, we had a lovely, I can't even remember, it was an afternoon or a morning together, but <laughs> that's how we met was in Melbourne.
0: That's interesting. So to be a paper maker and artist seems like a fairly rare thing. So do you seek out other paper makers wherever you go, Barb? Is that something that happens?
2: I certainly do. Yes. Two years ago, my husband and I were traveling around the world in different places and I definitely visited any paper makers that I knew. Paper makers are so generous. And they always welcome you wherever you go.
0: Again, because to be a papermaker and a paper artist is kind of an unusual thing, I wonder if you could both tell me a little bit about how you got into it before we get into the kind of the meat of the podcast. Amy, do you want to go first? I got into paper making through book arts. When I was in university, my
1: final year of college at Oberlin College, I took a course in artist books and I just fell in love with this medium. And when it came time for me to go to pick a graduate program, I chose one that also happened to require a papermaking course, which I didn't know anything about or wasn't that interested in. But then as soon as I took it, I just fell in love with papermaking. And then it became the central part of my work. And through that, kind of learning about the history of papermaking was how I learned more about hanji which is Korean paper and then I kind of ran with it from there so part of the work that I do with the paper that I make is making paper for the artist books that I still
0: make and which you can see at your website which is amylee.net right yes and that's A-I-M-W-E-L-W dot net and I have to say your work is absolutely
2: amazing Bob, tell me about you. Yes, I where I live, we have a community arts centre close by, and I was working there as a volunteer in the artist's run shop. And the paper makers were meeting above me in a little mezzanine floor, and I could hear them chatting. And I gradually got to meet them, and uh, so I joined the group. And they are just. A vibrant group, which is unusual for Australia. There aren't many groups um, because we've had such a low population and there's not a lot of papermakers. So it was just so perfect. And uh, that's why I started meeting there. I just finished teaching in a primary school and I'd thought, you know, oh, I can do everything now, which I tried. And then I thought, no, I think I need to do one thing properly. So I declared a year, the year of paper and just made paper for the entire year. And uh, that got me going. You don't make paper in the Hanji tradition, which is what Amy specializes in, right? No, I don't. I just do it in Western tradition, um, yeah, with a, a mold and decal and dry it on cloths and hang it up that way.
0: And Amy, how does making paper in the Hanji tradition differ from how Barb makes paper?
1: Well, every culture in every country that has paper making does it a little differently. And it's really based on the natural resources. So the raw materials, either plants or things like rags um, in a lot of the European and Islamic uh, cultures and then based on the raw material, that determines the kind of tool you need. So Barb mentioned a mold and decal, which is a rigid screen and then a frame that goes on top of it, whereas a lot of the East Asian styles use a flexible bamboo screen. And a lot of them also have a rigid frame on top, but hanji is different because it has no frame whatsoever on top of the screen. So there's a bamboo screen that's sitting on top of a wooden frame, and the paper maker has to control it as... They move it through a slurry of water, which is really challenging, but really suits the materials well. In Korea, the primary raw material is the paper mulberry tree. Brucinesia papyrifera is one of the species, and then there's a Brucinesia kazanoki, and then there's one more that I've forgotten the Latin name of, but they look like actually... Uh, shrubs, they're perennials. And so you just cut them back every year and then they grow right back. So it's a—it's more of a coppicing uh, method. It's not like you just fell the trees and they die and never come back.
0: And
2: what's the primary raw material that you work with, Barb? Mostly it's just whatever's available, but I have my favorites. One of the benefits in the pandemic was that I had plants in my garden that I could use so I have flax growing and red hot poker and some grasses and I use those because they're readily available but usually once people know that I'm a paper maker they find me the fibers or know that I walk into their garden and say oh can I pick your whatever it is and use it for my paper making so yeah there's not really one thing and there's recycled ragboard and so on that I use too or last week I was making paper out of jeans because they were readily available so yeah I was browsing through your website earlier that's barbadams.com and
0: I saw that you at uh, some stage during the pandemic, you were pulping old tax
2: returns to make <laughs> new, fresh paper. I was. I mean, what better to do with a tax return than get rid of it and uh, give it a new life? And I mean, that's what I love about papermaking, that I'm taking things that aren't precious to other people. But once I've made it into a beautiful piece of paper, it is precious and it's a piece of art.
0: That's lovely. Amy, how come you chose to focus on hanji?
1: I was trained as a Western papermaker at first and it was really once I got into the papermaking history that I became more interested in Korean papermaking and that came explicitly because I am of Korean heritage so I was born in New York to Korean parents who had immigrated in their 20s to the U.S. and so I grew up at a time where um, I Racism is still a big issue, but I grew up at a time where Korea really was not on the radar of Americans beyond the Korean War in North Korea. And so I always grew up feeling like Korean culture was not really known or regarded highly. And then I realized it was important for me as someone who was bilingual to be able to actually go to Korea and learn about Hanji so that I could share that information since I had the language skills and kind of the cultural sensitivity to both cultures to be able to Share it in a way that would give a lot more depth to the research.
0: Sure. And I should note that you're actually in Korea right now doing further research. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But first of all, can I ask you both to talk about what you were doing in terms of your paper making an artistry when the pandemic struck? in whatever form it struck, and how it affected you. Barb, do you want to go with that first?
2: Yes, I was just so grateful that I had something like papermaking that is a central part of my life because it was the perfect thing that I could continue doing here at home. It really was wonderful to have my studio and have some stock of what I needed to make my paper, and I could continue with that because it really kept me uh, centred and in control. I felt that the pandemic was out of control, but being able to be here and make my paper that I could control and enjoy, it gave me a sense of security. I made lots of paper and spent time talking with my friends who I tuned into weekly, discussing what we would do with our paper because we'd made so much. So, um, but that was good. We found a solution. We made up beautiful packs of our paper and sold them and then donated our money to the Bushfire Relief Fund because many people here had had their houses burnt to the ground in the summer and then had the pandemic as well. So that was a good solution. Am I right in understanding that your livelihood doesn't come from papermaking? No, that comes from the 30 years I had of teaching and then have (laughs) some money put away. No, no, I don't make money from it. People pay me to do workshops, but it it wouldn't feed me for very long.
0: (laughs) And so were you teaching any workshops when the pandemic hit? How did the pandemic hit in Australia for... Us began to make a massive impact around the second week of March, I would say.
2: That would be it. That was when I had to cancel workshops and beautiful trips with papermakers we had planned and so on. And it was it was sudden. There was lockdowns and so on. So the cancellations and the disappointments were the really hard part about last year, not the time I spent at home. It was things that I was going to do that didn't happen. One major thing was the International Congress in Japan, which perhaps Amy was going to too, where I was going to have my first trip to Japan and learn about papermaking there. But other things, workshops I'd had planned were cancelled and gatherings with other papermakers. But some of those happened again like 12 months later. So this year in March, we started doing things again. Right. Amy, what about you? Because I remember us
0: conversing via email back in around August, I think, and looking at the email that you wrote back to me when I was asking you if you'd be interested in participating, and you said something like you didn't know if you were going to be a suitable participant because your work had taken the back seat. um, And I'm paraphrasing slightly. I've been very slow in the grieving and getting on with it process. It has been hard to lose so much work and accept that all my teaching is going to move forward in a drastically different manner. Um, Actually, though, that was only a couple of months in. I don't think you were slow at all in the grieving and getting on with it process. But at that stage, you were still in it. Can you tell me a little bit about how it hit you? Well, usually every year I
1: teach a very intense month-long workshop for Oberlin College students, and that's in January. And so I built Oberlin College a whole paper-making studio, and 2020 was the first year we were finally having a fully built-out studio. It was very exciting and a great group of students. And during, I think, the end of that class, we started to kind of hear about this pandemic and then even then I think I so regretted not giving one of my students a hug because I think we were we were starting to worry about these things and so usually my paper making at the start of the year is just what I do in class with the students and teaching and then after that I was probably just doing whatever I do to, to kind of recover from teaching and then went to New York City to teach a class at the Center for Book Arts. And then as soon as I got home, that was the week when our governor shut down Ohio. It was incredibly drastic and very sudden because I actually was supposed to present the studio itself at a symposium at Oberlin, I think the day after that he shut us down. So we couldn't do any of that. And then one by one, each of my gigs, because I'm almost completely freelance, each of my gigs just disappeared. And we went from thinking, oh, this is just going to take two weeks to, you know, oh, well, I guess you're going to have to cancel your flight. And we can't reimburse you because we haven't gotten any money from the students paying tuition because we've had to refund it. And so it was very scary, actually, because that's my major source of income is teaching. And I was lucky that, um, Unemployment finally allowed for self-employed folks to apply. So if I didn't have that,
0: I would be in very, very big trouble. So for you, just to clarify, papermaking and teaching about paper and paper arts history is your livelihood. Yes. I don't make a huge living selling the paper
1: exactly, but everything around paper making is exactly how I make my living.
0: In fact, I seem to remember when we were first talking, you were saying something like, I'm wondering if I should get a, a job job. <laughs>
1: i always wonder if i should get a job job but then something always falls out of the sky that reminds me that i'm doing okay just stay on the paper and the hanji path and i'll be okay i won't ever be rich
0: but i'll be satisfied
2: and we will benefit from all your wonderful (laughs) teaching
0: (laughs) yeah again I, i i encourage listeners to go to both of your websites but amy has lots of examples of artistry like creations of ducks and baskets and just these most amazing things that you would never think could be created out of paper. It's just incredible. So, Barb, it sounded like you were finding making paper a kind
2: of soothing process during this chaos of the pandemic. Definitely. I mean, it's something that I'd always found anyway, but it was highlighted and became much more important if I'm having trouble concentrating or doing something I should be doing, I literally go to my vat and I stand there and I make paper. And it's not a thinking process. It's something that the paper is telling me and showing me. And often if I need to make paper for a workshop or a an exhibition. I'll stand there at my vat and just make paper for hours and something will emerge at the end. The paper will morph or I'll think about adding something. And it's just part of bringing all the fibers together to make a sheet of paper. It does something in my brain. I'm not usually a person that talks about something, but making paper and working with it is the way I'm working out what's important to me in my life, I think. And it really yeah, sustains me did making paper during this time lead to any particular insights about the pandemic or about the process of being human <laughs> i think what it really taught me i mean, when i was thinking through this um, the whole situation was it seemed to fall into different categories it was about my paper but it was about the people and the other papermakers that are so important to me in the process but it's about place as well and it really taught me being confined here to our beautiful home with my garden. It taught me that I have a sanctuary and it sort of reframed the thought that I was locked down which is how everyone seemed to see it that really I was just being given a beautiful time to be in this sanctuary and do what I love doing the most. That's fascinating a couple of episodes back I was speaking to a couple of
0: artists who work in various mediums but not paper like photography and painting and so on and they were talking about how this time has made us have to renegotiate our relationships with the space in which we live in different ways. Amy, listening to Barb, did you feel any kinship in what she was describing in terms of paper making during this time? Or how has it been for you? Oh, it's been, (laughs) I I feel kinship to the
1: general idea that she mentioned about how being at the VAT is not a thinking process, and you work through a lot of things. That, as a general thing, I feel can shift too. But in terms of her experience, it almost feels opposite because I actually pretty much stopped making. I didn't make any paper. I didn't make any art. I stopped everything I was making. I had several projects, and nothing felt important anymore because we were so just desperately ill-informed and not led properly in our country. And on top of that, for me personally, people who look like me were being scapegoated for the entire pandemic. And so I actually felt very scared and I didn't actually want to leave my house because I live I live in a pretty quiet but very white area. And even when I came home from New York, my next door neighbor made some kind of comment that made it seem clear that he thought that I was some kind of vector for disease and that I had probably been in Asia. And so for like a month, I just didn't want to go outside, even though I would sit at my window and I would see people walking and walking and all these dogs. And more and more people were doing that because that was the only thing we were allowed to do that was apparently safe enough. And even though I wanted to join them, I just was scared for my safety. There was this sense of just dread, I guess. And unfortunately, that's been really proven to be accurate in terms of all the violence that's been happening towards Asians and Asian Americans. And not that I think that that hadn't been happening, but we just are more aware of it. So that experience was, it was so different and it was really disturbing but like Barb said I was very grateful that I have my own house and I live there alone and I had my own space so that it's not that I was sitting there terrified doing nothing I was still working very hard it was just nothing I had been doing before so I just kept drawing um, one rhododendron bush that was outside my window and I would do that every day to kind of soothe me and I was sewing a lot I was just sewing tons and tons of stuff that had nothing to do with anything but learning to sew and it probably was some kind of survival mechanism like I needed to learn how to sew clothes and in, in case the world came to an end which seemed like it might
0: oh Amy I'm so sorry that sounds awful it does with everything else that was going on to have that kind of feeling of or that knowledge of this kind of prejudice that's just an awful lot to deal with Right. Which is why
1: it was such a relief for me to be able to come to Korea and just get a break for a while. Yes. So tell me about that. So I had been approved for a Fulbright grant to go to Korea probably in early 2020. And I had to go through a lot of paperwork. Korea had very strict rules about who could enter and how and the timing of things like the COVID tests. And so Literally up until a day or two before my departure, I was so stressed out that I wouldn't be allowed to board the plane. And then immediately after I landed, I went through at least six hours of processing. But then once I went through a full two-week quarantine and you are not allowed to leave your space, they track you on your phone. If they find that your phone isn't moving, they'll wonder if you left your phone. And I mean, it's very strict. Um, Once that was over then I can move about freely. And Korea actually is pretty open. So I've been traveling a lot and there's been no issue.
0: And you went to Korea in January. Is that right? I went to Korea in the very beginning of February. You mentioned a little bit earlier that the US was not being led very well during the early months of the pandemic. And I wonder how things have been in Australia and Korea. Barb, do you want to tell me about Australia's reaction to the pandemic and how it's dealt
2: with it? Have you been happy with how things have gone? I have, actually, especially in our state. I've been yeah, very happy with the severe restrictions that they put in place because it contained the pandemic relatively quickly. We did have a second wave and had them all shut down again. And I suppose for me, because it doesn't affect me so much, I wasn't as critical as some people. I mean, businesses, of course, were very critical. It had a big impact on them, but I was happy and things could happen at the side. Like I was actually able to participate in three different exhibitions over the time and that was actually a lot of the time I spent when I was locked down at home um, doing work for three different exhibitions which could still happen and people could still share their artworks so we were very lucky because we have you know the sea for a border I think really helped us. What about South Korea Amy? From the surface, it seems like things
1: are back to normal, but they really aren't. And like Barb was saying, the issue is that the businesses are suffering because places like restaurants and bars, everything has to close at nine or 10. And so that's just killed all the nightlife. And I was really shocked when I started walking around Seoul. It's just so quiet and there's so many empty businesses and everything is for rent. And These are places that used to be like elbow to elbow bustling. That's been sad to see at the same time as someone who who is not a Korean citizen and is not making a living doing those things. I actually feel like I am living in this tiny sliver of time that will never happen again in Korea where. I can travel freely. I mean, obviously I have to wear a mask and they do a a ton of contact tracing, um, which is good. It makes people feel safe and is responsible, but it's not as densely populated because people are careful about going out. So it's a much more kind of free and comfortable way to move around rather than being like shoved into subway cars and things like that. So I feel very lucky to have this experience.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about what your research in Korea is actually about? So I'm in Korea doing research on
1: tools that you need to make hanji. Specifically, there's a woven bamboo screen that you need that the paper actually sits on, the fibers sit on that screen, and that's the main tool. All of the other tools I feel like I've been able to replicate in the States pretty well, but... This one, I just wasn't able to get, so I felt like I had to come back. And my last grant, when I met this one um, screen maker, it was in 2009, and even then, he was the only person left in Korea doing it. So this trip, I was trying to learn more about that, and I wasn't able to get it exactly from him. I'm uh, about four months into a five-month research grant, but... I have been able to get some information from his wife and then two other screen makers in Korea.
0: Okay, so there aren't many makers of these kinds of screens around, evidently. There's only
1: three makers of bamboo screens, period, and only one maker of bamboo screens to make hanji in Korea. And that's a very specific skill that he has because he used to run a hanji paper mill. And so he knows very well what kinds of details are really important in making these screens. They're different, but um, because you have to kind of recreate things as you go, I figured if I learned from all of them, I could piece it together myself since I also know how to make the paper. How's the research going? It's been a series of highs and lows and disappointments. I've had to deal with things like sexual harassment from people who I thought were supposed to help me with my research to having part of my tooth break while out to dinner with a national treasure who was teaching me and having to spend time away from our study at the dentist. And it's very circuitous, but also incredibly rich. And I've Pretty much done most of the things I wanted to do. The kind of cherry on top will be next week that I'll be able to study the sheet formation method, which I've already learned, but learned it from a different person who has just been named a national treasure in hanji making here in Korea yesterday.
0: Oh, that's amazing! Oh, how yeah. exciting! Yeah, so it's very exciting. And do you think you'll be able to reproduce this kind of bamboo screen when you get back to the States now? Oh, (laughs) that's uh, what I've learned, which
1: I probably should have anticipated. It's so much work. It's something that if I have the right supplies, I could, but that's going to require a lot more research stateside in terms of what bamboo is being grown in the U.S. and how readily I have access to the fresh three- or four-year-old bamboo of the right species. And how
0: much is the pandemic kind of shaping or affecting your research? Is it something that's very present every day or is it something that's kind of faded into the
1: background? I think it's still very present in that the mask mandate is in place and all of the contact tracing, which means anytime you enter a building or or visit a restaurant or anything like that at the door, you have to scan either a QR code on your phone or sign in with your phone number so that they can trace you immediately if there's an outbreak. But the way it's affected it more directly is, for example, I was trying to meet a regional treasurer of making screens, and he's 82. And At first, he said he would teach me. And then suddenly he said, oh, our village won't even allow anyone who doesn't live in the village to come in. And so we begged him to see if there's any way around it. And then they said, "Okay, as long as you don't go to the parts of the village where people congregate and you just go to his house and leave, then it should be okay." So I was really concerned before I left, actually, that the people that I wanted to meet wouldn't meet with me because they're all older, but they actually have been totally fine. They're not scared. Often they're worse about wearing masks and don't wear them. Um, But in terms of traveling, there's just a lot of uh, protocol in place. So even though it's very present, it's not something that's disturbing or um, kind of debated. Everyone just falls into place.
0: We know we have to do these things. I'm kind of impressed by the contact tracing because, I mean, that hasn't happened at all in the US as far as I know, has it? No, not at all.
1: Americans would never stand for that. I mean, they won't even wear masks. Korea is different that we get a lot of this fine dust coming over from China and Mongolia. And so Koreans are already accustomed to wearing particulate filtering masks. And they're also just better at following rules and trusting that the government is actually trying to protect them and not hurt
2: them. What's the approach been to mask wearing in Australia it's just mandatory it's been mandatory at certain stages of the pandemic and we certainly do serious serious contact tracing you wouldn't go into anywhere without doing your QR code or writing your phone number and it's excellent so
0: Amy do you think having this research to do which is nothing to do with the pandemic but affected by the pandemic has that managed to shift your state of mind
1: I do think the research has helped give me a sense of purpose that I didn't have when I was at home during the pandemic. And some parts of it have given me so much joy in meeting and connecting with people who are kind of kindred spirits in this process. And being able to do something that I've wanted to do for so long in terms of this tool research, that has been really helpful. I think, though, it's impossible to escape as an American citizen what's going on back home. And as much as I'd love to detach, I've been asked to do certain things to help support the Asian American community back home. And so right now I'm in the process of working on new work for a portfolio project called Chung, which is kind of a Korean word for, it's like love, but it's really much deeper than that. And it's a kind of feeling that Koreans have for each other, that this warmth, this is something I try to tuck into the research that I'm doing. And so the days are incredibly full and I'm more just grateful for the perspective I have even though I'm connected to the U.S., to be away from it because it's such a relief to be someplace where I'm not the minority, where no one will single me out to attack me just because I look Korean. And also there's gun control here. People don't have guns, so I don't have to worry about being shot. I realize there's this huge weight taken away that I usually have when I'm home. And I think the pandemic was just one more thing that made me realize that There are artists who really thrive in conflict and I'm not one of those artists and this time has really confirmed that for
2: me. Just listening to Amy then made me think about myself and other paper makers responses here like some of the paper makers were very literal in their artwork and they were you know doing pictures of masks or sewing on their paper with corona shapes and so on but what i valued was those opportunities I mentioned before to exhibit my artwork and have a totally different focus that took my mind away from the pandemic. One of the country bookshops in Victoria every two years runs an amazing Biblio prize for people to use the books in their bookshop as a basis for their artworks. They pull the name of a book out of a hat and send it to you and you read the book and make an artwork around what arises for you in reading the book. And I just loved doing that. And the book I had was a Tom Keneally book called The Dickens Boy and it was about Dickens' 10th child who was sent to Australia because he was an embarrassment to his father. And uh, he worked on a sheep station. So I ended up making a life-size morning coat out of paper shaping it literally into a coat but on the paper before i made the coat i put a map of sheep stations and rivers that would be where plorn the protagonist would have worked it really took my mind away from anything else because i had to concentrate so hard doing that and i was really happy with the coat that was a different move for me to be so three dimensional in my work things like that were really helpful in terms of putting the other things, things that I couldn't change, like the pandemic further away from me. Do you think you'll incorporate the pandemic into any future kind of creations? I don't feel like that at the moment, but I never know. As I say, the paper tells me, so it may still it may still happen. And Amy, what about you? I actually did have
1: a solo show during the very end of 2020 into beginning of 2021. And it was one that I invited an old student to show with me. So it was a two-person show at the Sculpture Center in Cleveland. And that was actually a real comfort because I went back to an old piece I had done many years ago and kind of recreated it. And it was just so soothing to do something that I knew so well like what Barb was saying, that your mind is released to do other things when your hands are busy making paper. And I think it's very much this process, especially working with water, that kind of lets you go to a different place that you can't do with other things. So that kind of gave me hope for the possibility of if I need to lean on older work and kind of reimagine it, that's okay too. But going forward, I actually will be coming back to Cleveland to Open a brand new studio. So, I had already built a Hanji studio in Cleveland at the Morgan Conservatory, but I'm building a private Hanji studio in South Euclid. And the construction has been underway. It's been a lot of stopping and starting, partly because of COVID, but also just because of the nature of construction. And so, my section is all done, and there will also be a gallery space. So, there's a lot of huge potential going forward. I don't know if I'll address the pandemic directly because I'm actually, frankly, really exhausted by work that addresses the pandemic. But my work already has always been about what it means to be human and and how we connect to each other and the rest of the world. This time has really made us all think about that so much more. So I'm sure that will impact the work going forward.
0: Both of you teach in various different contexts. Have you noticed that there's been more interested in papermaking or crafts in general, crafts and arts in general, because people are looking for ways to occupy themselves during a time when they can't do many of the things that they might normally do to occupy themselves. Amy, I'll come back to you.
1: I actually took a really big step backwards from teaching, even though I was either offered opportunities to go online or told that I should pivot. And I just knew that I couldn't go that way. But I do think there have been more people interested in figuring out ways that they can learn how to essentially make things and use their hands at a time when They're either unemployed or have extra time or just want to get away from the monotony of what's going on at home. But I know for me, though, it's hard to be away from teaching because I really love doing it so much. And I learn so much from my students and I get so energized from it. But I also get really depleted from it sometimes. And so I've just taken this time to kind of regroup and think about how I want to operate going forward. And I think if anything, it just reinforces how important for me the in-person direct learning is. But I do think based on the little online exhibit openings or artist talks or panels that I've done online, that the work still translates to some extent. Like the woven work that I do, not the paper making itself, but the what I do with the paper seems to be much more interesting to people who are watching online than just seeing my head talking. So I have hopes, even though I am really reluctant to do that kind
2: of work. I totally agree with Amy that online teaching for me is not the go. I mean, people need to be here touching the paper, I need to see the light in their eyes where they hold their book and nearly cry at the end of the session and say, I've actually made a book and I like it. And that could not happen online for me. You know, I teach in my studio here. I have a whole wall of books and things that I pluck off as I teach and the situation of sitting stationary and talking to a screen is totally at odds with that. But I had noticed that the Zoom sessions we were doing with the other papermakers really helped keep an interest high so that then when we could run our workshops again this year, people flooded. The workshops were full. They were eager to work and learn. And that's a wonderful thing to be part of. I think
0: I've asked pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you and didn't and you want to say? No, I mean, I'm just so grateful that I got a chance to
1: catch up with Barb. (laughs) That's mostly. I'm
2: grateful for that. I agree, Amy. I agree. And I really appreciate the opportunity to think through why I do my art and how it sustains me and what is important with it. It's a really positive feeling and I appreciate it. What you were
1: saying from the very beginning, just reminded me, what I've heard from so many paper makers, and there's a national treasurer in Japan who I had put his quote up in the first studio I built, which is essentially that you have to bring yourself to A state of peace, and you have to be really present and calm before you get to the vat. Otherwise, your paper will be a mess because the paper reflects exactly how you're feeling at the time. But I think that's also really reflected in your paper. I, you know, Barb says she doesn't make a living selling her paper, but her paper is beautiful. I couldn't keep my hands off of it, and I wanted to take it all (laughs) home, but that was only had so much room in my suitcase.
0: Thank you, Amy. That's a
1: compliment.
0: Well, listen thank you so much to my two guests amy lee who's usually based in cleveland ohio but who joined us today from south korea and Barb adams who lives in melbourne australia thank you and you can find out more about both of my guests in the notes which accompany this podcast COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery theme grant initiative. So many people have been instrumental in making the series happen, including Christina Benedetti, Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitalski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you very much for listening.